to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and I'm joined here today by the wonderful Nicole and Journey. This week, Nicole will be telling us about the case of Colonel Russell Williams, and Journey will be educating us on the science of pattern and impression evidence, focusing more so on the tire treads, and how it also played um, an important role in his capture. So, this case in discussion today was recommended by a listener and good friend of mine, so I'm personally really excited to hear about it. Just before we start, I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as we do have descriptions of sexual assault, um, assault, murder, suicide, and quotes from the victims. So, on that note, let's get started. Nicole, would you care to tell us who Colonel Williams is? I would love to. Um, So, I'm going to start a little bit about his personal life and about his military life before I get into his crimes because I feel like it kind of sets the scene as to who he was. So he was born on March 7th, 1963 in Bromsgrove, England. His family soon immigrated to Chalk River, Ontario, Canada, and his parents separated when he was six years old. His mother actually went on to marry their like good family friend's husband husband I guess so like their family the Williams were really good friends with the Sovkas that family and then the Williams separated and the mom went to marry Mr. Sovka his name was Dr. Jerry Sovka and it ended up being that Williams took the last name of his stepfather and then they moved to Scarborough Ontario By 1979, his family moved to South Korea for work, and Williams had actually stayed in Toronto to finish his last two years of high school, and he was a boarding student there. He was actually one of two prefects elected for his boarding house during his final year of high school, and he attended the Upper Canada College, and this was in 1982 that he was elected. Upon graduation, he attended and graduated from the University of Toronto with an economics and political science degree. In 1987, he enrolled in the Canadian Forces, and in January of 1991, he was promoted to captain. Come June of 1991, Williams married Mary Elizabeth Harriman, 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 I don't know how to pronounce that. And in 1992, he was posted in CFB Shearwater, Nova Scotia, where he flew in um, the electronic war- warfare excuse me, and coastal patrol role, which I thought was really interesting because Shearwater is very close to where Rebecca and I are now. That is very cool. Yeah, I had no idea that he came so close to our territory. <laughs> right? And it like this whole uh, case kind of just upsets me because one he's in Nova Scotia and two I'm from Ontario and very close to Toronto so like all of these places I know I'm like this makes me so uncomfortable I was alive when you were doing this but anyways so two years after his post in Nova Scotia he was then posted in Ontario in Ottawa and he transported high-ranking government officials, foreign dignitaries, and other important individuals on, like, Challenger aircrafts. So he's said to have flown Queen Elizabeth II, the Duke of Edinburgh, the Governor-General of Canada, 
Prime Minister of Canada, and a lot of other dignitaries across Canada and overseas. In 1999, Williams was promoted once more to major and was posted to Director General Military Careers in Ottawa, where he served as the multi-engine pilot career manager. I'm not well-versed in military lingo, so I'm not entirely sure what these roles are, but I'm sure some of our listeners will. And 2004 was actually quite a busy year for Williams. He earned a Master's of Defense Studies with a 55-page thesis that he wrote that actually supported the preemptive war in Iraq. In June, he was promoted once more to lieutenant colonel, and a month later, he was appointed commanding officer of a squadron in Trenton, Ontario. And I'm apologizing right now if I say (laughs) colonel, because I have it colonel written properly in my notes, and every time I read it, It's not supposed to be pronounced as colonel. There's no way colonel is colonel. In my notes as well, I have it written as colonel, like a popcorn colonel, just to remind (laughs) me to pronounce it that way. I love that. English is not fun. Anyways, uh, for a few months, Williams had actually served as the commanding officer of a secretive logistics facility, and the location's not really known but it's suspected that it was in Dubai where he was working. And by 2006, Williams served as project director, excuse me, as project director for the Airlift Capability Project Strategic and Tactical and Fixed Wing Search and Rescue. That means nothing to me. I'm not military again, but I'm sure this is a very honorable position. Um, oops. That same year, his wife and him had moved to Ottawa, Ontario, and they had like built their dream house, I guess. Like they built a house from scratch for them. And he was sworn in as the wing commander at Canadian Forces Base in Trenton in July of 2009. And by 2010, though, his wife started filing for a divorce. But it's interesting because she was seeking that the court would seal all of her financial and medical information so no one would have access to it. And I couldn't find anything else about that. It just was a note that was like, yeah, she wanted her record sealed. And that was it. But I guess he was also described as an elite pilot and a shining bright star of the military. And this soon changed, though, because people didn't know what he was up to. So moving more so onto his crimes, uh, I'm just going to give another listener's discretion advice because this guy is some messed up. Like I was reading his case and I had to pause a little bit and that says a lot because I've read some pretty crappy stuff. But his earliest crime that's kind of known was committed in 2007 and this is when he began breaking into his neighbor's homes. So on one occasion, he broke into a neighbor's house took a photo of himself masturbating while lying naked on their bed in their house wearing, or I don't know if he was wearing the female's red underwear or if he was just holding it, but he had red underwear, female red underwear with him. And it's believed to have belonged to the 12 year old girl that lived in that house. And he would often take close-up photos of his penis while wearing the underwear of his victims. Um, 
Ew. That that's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. Ew. No, thank you. It only gets worse. And so many of the photos taken actually like that night and m- many other nights because we'll come to learn that he does this a lot. Um, it actually show him <laughs> with his penis protruding from like the side of the underwear or like he just, I guess he couldn't tuck very well. I don't know if he knew how to tuck. He was just hanging out in a lot of these photos, which yeah, <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing, but like, I'm kind of laughing. That makes me giggle a little bit. I know. Like I know it, sh- it, sh- <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't, but it does a little bit. Yeah, okay, cool beans. And so this actually became a pattern for Williams. He would break into homes, steal from them. He would dress up and masturbate while wearing the clothes and underwears of the females that lived there. And some of these victims were as young as nine years old, which really I, I don't like at all. He had a specific routine where he would photograph the female's bedroom. Then he would photograph the underwear in the dressers. He would then continue to arrange the underwear or lingerie on the floor, like, really nicely. Then modeled them. And then would masturbate and ejaculate while wearing it. Um, So he did this a lot. And another common thing is that... Well... Oh, I just hit my mic. That's going to be really annoying. Another thing was that when he modeled his, the underwear, I'm just laughing because we have a picture of this on our notes, but what he would do is that he'd face his back to the camera and then he'd like look over his shoulder, kind of like half at the camera and he would model that way. And there are several pictures of him doing this. Like we'll include some photos in our source notes, but that was a very common thing for him to do as well. I keep hitting my microphone. Sorry, I'm such a hand talker, and I keep hitting it. It's okay. I am too. It's okay. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> okay. Um, and I really don't like this, but on occasion, it was said that he would actually leave messages to his victims after breaking into their homes. So on one, on one occasion or one time, he had left, like, a typed message that said merci, which is French for thank you, on the computer of one of his preteen victims. Could you imagine coming home to that on your computer? Just saying thank you, but not knowing what happened and that he was wearing your underwear, that he was doing all of this in your bed, in your underwear. I'm so spooked. I really don't enjoy that. That's unimaginably gross. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? And there's... I read that there... He had pictures of him, like, in some of his victims' beds with, like, plushies and, like, their stuffed animals all around them because that's how young they were. Ew. Yeah. Um, So moving on from that, things kind of escalated. So, but between 2007 and 2009, this was, like, his main break and enter. And I guess they were called um, fetish break-ins. Because this is, he had this fetish with underwear. He committed 82 of these fetish break-ins between 2007 and 2009 within 48 different homes. Which is a lot. <laughs> so he went back? So did he go back to people? Yeah. <gasps> he, yeah. Ew, multiple no. times. 
And we'll, I talk about one of his victims. He had broken into her house three times. And it wasn't until the third time that he actually, like, did stuff to her. The other two were just with her underwear and stuff. Ew. Like, I don't even know. I can't even process that. No. I know. Oh, okay. And so, like I kind of mentioned, his crime started to escalate after this. So, in 2009, he hid outside of a young woman's home, waited for her to get in the shower. He stripped naked broke into her house and stole some underwear did he strip naked before i don't know why he stripped naked yeah before yep i don't know why that is okay that is literally my worst nightmare (laughs) of like getting in the shower and then someone breaks into my house or someone's like already in the shower and like i just don't like that's so scary right i don't love that and then another time he had watched a teenager undress from outside got himself, like, he undressed himself, he was then naked, and proceeded to masturbate outside while looking in through the window. Are these in the suburbs? Can people see him? Uh, I think this was at his cottage, and I guess his cottage, I think, it was, like, rural back roads. It wasn't a very suburb thing. But I think, I think it's voyeurism, is this one not exhibitionism? And they, like, they get off on the thought of being caught, kind of. Yeah, because isn't voyeurism, like, you enjoy watching someone do something and that that's the thrill of it? Yeah, it's the thrill of them not knowing. Yes, that's And, it. like, the thrill of possibly getting caught. Yes. Which is disgusting. In, I don't like that at all. Yeah. It only gets worse. It only gets worse. In September of 2009, he broke into the home of a 20-year-old, 21-year-old woman. He was wearing all black. He had his face covered. While she was asleep, he struck her over the head to subdue her. Then he hit her several more times um, before binding her hands together and putting a pillowcase over her head. Once the pillowcase was over her head, she reported that Williams, and at the time the assailant wasn't known, so it was just this man, pulled her tank top to the side, exposing her breasts, fondled her, and then photographed her nude body. And so after taking pictures of her nude body, he took some lingerie and a baby blanket and left the scene. I don't know why the baby blanket... Okay, I was just going to ask, like, that's the oddest combination of things to steal from someone's house. And I think, like, she's 21, and so I would assume it was, like, her childhood baby blanket. Like, I don't think she had a child. Yeah. But, like, that's such an odd keepsake kind of momentum, momento thing. Yeah, hmm, let me just break into your house and steal a baby blanket and some lingerie. Right? Because that's normal. Yeah, and then less than two weeks after... Just weird. Yeah, I I don't like any of this. Uh, Less than two weeks after this attack, he then broke into the home of 46-year-old... A 46-year-old mother, excuse me, who was sleeping on her couch in front of the TV. Williams just decided to begin punching her, wrapped her in a blanket, tied her up, and blindfolded her. And then over three hours, he fondled her, took photos pulled out a knife and cut her clothing off 
took photographs throughout, and then after taking more photographs, he left and went back to his cottage, which was across the road. No. Mm-hmm. No, you don't do things close to where you live. Mm-hmm. And... You, well, you shouldn't do that anyways, but definitely <laughs> don't do it close to where you live. Yeah. And oh this attack was the third and final time he broke into her house. So this is what I was saying earlier. This woman was the one that he broke into her house multiple times. And he just decided that the third time he was going to actually assault her that time. Which was not fun. And this was September-ish of 2009. In November of 2009, this is when his crimes really escalated. 37-year-old Corporal Marie France Como she worked under Williams as a military flight attendant. She was found dead in her home in November. And I guess on through like interviews and stuff afterwards, he detailed these descriptions of the crimes. Yeah, so I'll go into it a bit, um, but it, it does get kind of not nice. So on the night of her murder... Williams broke into her house and waited in the basement until Como went to bed. But instead of going to bed, she had gone downstairs into the basement to look for her cat. Because I guess she had two cats and she was just making sure that one was home. She saw him, screamed, called him a bastard. And then Williams decided to hit her over the head with a large flashlight to get her to be quiet. He had also brought his own kit, quote, quote, air quotes, with him to Como's house, tied her arms up with rope, bound her to a pole, and took photos of her tied to this pole while she was unconscious. Which, like, bad to begin with, but she's still unconscious. Yeah, that's, that's not really what you want at all. No. And afterwards... Williams continued to drag her upstairs to her bedroom where he proceeded to sexually assault her over a period of hours. When Williams had gone to see if anyone was coming up to the house, Como made one final attempt to escape. He found her in the bathroom, though, beat her over the head with a flashlight once more, and she had at least five blows to her head, face, and ears. He proceeded to sexually assault her once more this time holding his camera up and recording her as she pled for her life. Throughout these videos, she can be heard over the recordings saying, quote, you're going to kill me, aren't you? End quote. And again, she can be heard saying, quote, have a heart, please. I want to live. End quote. And she, another source I read, it kept saying that she continuously just was repeating, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And... He obviously didn't care about this. But Williams was scared that the police would connect him to other sexual assaults if he led, let excuse me, Como live. And so he, he covered her airways with duct tape and left her to suffocate instead. Not even, like, kind of like a, like a mercy killing, like, just the most painful way. One of the most painful ways, in my opinion. Suffocating. That's so terrible. Yeah. Oh, that was a car, not me. Don't worry. Williams tried to cover up how he broke into her house, but being an 
idiot man that he is, he made a critical mistake and he left a bloody footprint behind. And this was a boot print that he left at the scene. And going back to like before all of this happened, I guess he had canvassed her house multiple times to make sure that she lived alone. And then once he knew that she lived alone and just only had two cats, that's when he decided to commit these crimes, Yikes. which is disgusting. Yeah. And so his second victim during these interrogations, Williams told detectives that he first noticed 27 year old Jessica Lloyd on January 27th of 2010. So two, two months, a month and a half after um, his first victim. And he said that he noticed her when he saw her exercising on a treadmill in her basement. But apparently the crown has cast a doubt on this story. I feel like it's something he would be interested in still and find her appealing that way. It doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility for him at all, no. Yeah, but regardless of this, this was the day before that, um, excuse me, this was the day before she had gone missing on January 28th, 2010. So Colonel Williams broke into Lloyd's house while she was sleeping, bound her with rope, duct taped her, wow, English, duct taped her eyes closed and continued to repeatedly sexually assault her and he videotaped and took photos of this attack. Oh. Yeah. He later drove Lloyd to his cottage where he forced her to take a shower while she was still restrained. But when she had asked for clothing to warm up because she was cold, Williams just left her in the bathtub shivering. And on video, Lloyd can be heard pleading for him to take her to the hospital or she was going to die. And during this time, she actually began having convulsions and her words began slurring at this point too. So she was like, this isn't a joke. Like I'm actually, something's wrong. You need to take me to the hospital. But of course, Williams ignored all of this and his response, I hate this so much. His response was quote, hang in there, baby, hang in there. End quote. I, yeah, I threw up in my mouth when I read that the first time. I was like, that's disgusting. And in these videos, um, Lloyd was said to be very, like, compliant. Sure, like, she didn't want to upset Williams, which was very different than the first victim, Como, because I guess she really put up a fight, whereas now Lloyd was like, look, like, I'll do whatever, just let me be. And she actually even apologized to Williams when she tried to get him to stop fondling her because she didn't want to upset him and make things worse. That's awful. It breaks my heart. And... I almost started crying when I read this the first time, but near the end of the video, which was also near the end of her life, Lloyd actually told Williams that, quote, if I die, will you tell my mom that I love her, end quote. And those were her, like, last words. <laughs> oh, I'm tearing up. Oh, yep. so sad. <laughs> Me too. I just, like, I. it's tough because, like, reading this, you kind of put yourself in the shoes of these victims and, like, for her to just want her mom, like, I'm really close with my mom, too. So to hear that, I'm like, fuck, breaks my heart. But anyways, um, Lloyd, not Lloyd, excuse me, Williams, the asshole that he is, proceeded to force her to model the lingerie. And afterwards, he decided to give her some fruit and told her that they were going to leave and go home. 
But as soon as she got up and started walking, he hit her over the head with a flashlight, strangled her, and put her body in the garage. And to make things worse, he left her for three days in the garage, her body in the garage for three days. He went to work. He just, he was flying troops to California and then he returned and dumped her body in an isolated area off of the rural road by his cottage. Wow. That's just so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. He just, yeah, like, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to fly these troops to California. Like, thank you so much for your service. I'm helping the country. I just murdered a girl and left her in her garage. Yeah, like, acting as if nothing happened. No, that's not okay. I just, I don't understand how people can have that mentality and that mindset. Like, obviously, there is something very, very wrong with him. But still... Like, how do you just leave someone in your garage? Like, do you not think someone's going to come into your garage and maybe find her? Like, he had no worries whatsoever. Oh, yeah, because I would be worried that someone was going to come into the garage and find her. But then also how, like, they have no link, really. Yeah. But still. Because with the first victim, they had the link because Como worked under him as the flight attendant for the military. But this girl, she was just in the neighborhood, I guess. Yikes. But moving on to kind of the investigation process and how um, he was caught, on the day that Lloyd had gone missing, investigators had actually found distinct tire track marks near the home of Lloyd in the snow from the source I found. And a week after the disappearance, the police began extensively canvassing everyone that used the highway near her house. So they were looking for tire treads that matched those found by her house, and they were looking for people who had used the highway from 7 p.m. on February 4th to 6 a.m. on February 5th. So they kind of disguised this as, you know, like ride programs where cops are like in the middle of the road on like New Year's or holidays, and they try and catch drunk drivers. I don't know if it's just an Ontario thing. We just call those check stops. Yeah, I think they happen in everywhere. They at least happen in Nova Scotia as well. Yeah, do they... we just don't call them ride programs. I, like, that means nothing to me. We just call them, like, check stops. Oh, okay. But, yeah, yeah the same like road thing. stops. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they had um, kind of disguised this as a... I'm going to call it a ride program just because that's the only thing I know. Um, and Williams was actually stopped during this. And because I guess he lived in the neighborhood and he told the police though, that he had, he was in a hurry because he had a very sick kid at home and he had to get home to him, which was a lie. He had no children from what I found, like whether he had a child or not, that was a lie to begin with. And three witnesses had actually seen an SUV. I think it was a silver SUV parked close to Lloyd's house at, on the night of her disappearance. And while they were canvassing, Williams was driving his Pathfinder. I'm not a car person. I guess Pathfinder is an SUV rather than his usual BMW, which is what he typically drove. And so an officer, when they came through, when he came through this ride program, noticed how similar his tire treads were on this Pathfinder and like how similar they were to the ones retrieved from Lloyd's house. So they, what an observant investigator or just like officer. Oh my God. Right. Tire treads are just all the same to me. I would not have known the difference, 
but a match was soon made between those on his Pathfinder and those on the house on by the house story, which I thought was really interesting. Um, on February seventh, so this was like a couple days after this canvassing, he was called in by the Ontario Police or the OPP to go in for questioning. His interview was ten hours long. He confessed to several crimes that he never ended up being convicted of, but still confessed Excuse me to them. The interrogation started at 3 p.m. on February the 7th, and by almost 8 o'clock at night, he was already confessing and discussing the crimes to the investigators. Wow. So, like, four or five hours? Five hours. <laughs> Math. He was confessing. Was it like a, oh, I'm proud of what I did kind of confession? Or was it like a, oh, I'm so remorseful, this is what I did kind of confession? I don't think it was either. I think it was a, oh, crap, I you have this tire tread and footprint now pattern against me. Because he, like, gave up his boots and all of this, and they ended up being a match. So he was right. like, well, I can't really get out of this. So this is everything that I did. He gave details of his crimes, including the sexual assaults, break-ins, and thefts, and he also told police where they would find more evidence, including the keepsakes he had hidden and the photographs. So the morning after the interrogation, Williams brought the investigators to Lloyd's body, which was in the secluded area, and it was only 13 minutes away from where he lived. Oh. Yep. He really didn't care about, like, geographic location and, like, whether or not they'd use that to find him. They would probably find him in, like, a day if they did geographic profiling or whatever it's called with him. Yeah, that's actually really neat that he was really close and it would have been super easy to find him if they had done geographic profiling. Yeah, and so he was charged with the murder of both Como and Lloyd, and he was also charged with more than 80 fetish break break-ins, forcible confinement, and the sexual assault of two other women. Which, I think he should have gotten more, but whatever. It is what it is. So, it was actually, excuse me, I made a mistake, but it was a week after his arrest that they were able to match his boot print with the one found at the first victim's house. But I think it was the tire tread that the investigator said, like, look, we have these tire treads we know it was from a car similar to yours but after this a whole bunch of unsolved murder cases where the victims were young women that lived in the area where Williams lived they were all reopened so the investigation into him actually probes him into 48 cases of theft of women's underwear going back as early as 2006 so these are 48 more cases on top of like the 80 he was charged with. That's so many. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's disgusting. Ooh. That's insane and gross. Yeah. And unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. I hate every minute of this. When police went to go search his house, they discovered stolen lingerie that was organized, stored, cataloged, and concealed in his home. So he was very meticulous about how he kept it. Which, mind you, he was living with his wife at this time, too. 
um, which is interesting to keep from her. Mm-hmm. And trigger warning for suicide. But in April of 2010, he attempted to take his life and he tried to do so by wedging a stuffed cardboard toilet paper roll down his throat. Um, I don't know why that was his go-to, but it didn't Is work. Is it insensitive to say that the toilet paper roll has a hole in it so you can he stuffed it. breathe? He okay. stuffed it. <laughs> okay, I was super confused. I was like, sir, that's not going to work. Like, no. I don't understand what you're tra- Okay. But yeah, I guess I think he was in prison... Like, he was incarcerated at this time, either waiting trial or whatever, but he was placed on suicide watch after that. And the day after his conviction, the Canadian military stripped him of his rank, and they actually burned his uniform, like, publicly, to make a statement about it. Yeah, which is huge to burn a uniform like that. Yeah. And unfortunately, like, I don't really understand how this works, but by law, he was still able to keep his military pension, even though everything he did and being in jail, um, he still keeps it. Was that like as a way to look out for his wife? I don't know. Okay. I have no... I'm not sure how the military works in this sense. I've never had anyone in my family a part of the military. So if listeners know, by all means, let us know. But I have I have no idea. Yeah. Weird. So I guess he's not technically a colonel anymore. But he was at the time, at the time. and it was happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's why he's still known as like... Colonel Russell Williams is because he had that high status while he was doing all of this. Um, But he got life imprisonment without the possibility of parole um, at least 25 years in jail, which is usually the typical for first-degree murder. Plus, he was two first-degree murder charges. So that just skyrockets the possibility of parole. And he's just a scumbag in jail. Yeah, 100%. And to make things even worse, when he was in court and he was asked if he would have continued to commit these sex sex acts, excuse me, or sex attacks, if he hadn't been caught, he replied that it was difficult to know, but he would most likely have kept breaking into homes and stealing lingerie, regardless. Yep, I hate that. Yep, not a fan. That's probably why he got 25. (laughs) Yep. Absolutely. I just still can't get over the fact that he wasn't only stealing it, but he was trying it on and modeling it. Like, we'll put the picture in the source uh, photos, but, like, he had a pose. He had a preferred pose for these photos. The fact that, like... It's just so friggin' weird. Like, I need to check, like, every time I go and put underwear on now, I'm gonna be like, is this stretched out? Did a grown man wear my underwear? This is gonna make me so uncomfortable. Because, like, he is a larger, not larger, like, compared to woman, though, he's a built man. These, typically, I would not assume would fit a grown man. Um, but, so, the, it makes for an interesting photo. I'll say that. But that is um, the life and crimes of this scumbag Canadian man. 
Wow. Yep. <laughs> well, that was a roller coaster. Yep. Um, thank you so much, Nicole, for telling us all about uh, Russell Williams. That was really interesting, and I apparently knew less about this case than I thought I did. Um, keeping on the topic of how he was caught, Journey, would you care to tell us about tire tread analysis? Yes, I would love to. So we're going to kind of completely change pace from gruesome murder to tire tread impressions. Okay, (laughs) so um, I didn't know there was a footprint in there, but we will do footprint evidence in a future episode. Um, Okay, but to start off, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what pattern evidence is. And so pattern evidence occurs when an object such as a shoe or a tire leaves an impression at a crime scene or on another object or on a person. And so the goal of impression evidence analysis is to identify the specific source from which it came, which kind of makes sense. And the impression can be two-dimensional, like a shoe print in dust or like a shoe print or a footprint in blood, or it can be three-dimensional, like a tire track in mud or snow. And so some other potential types of impression evidence can be bite marks, markings on bullets, and cartridge cases, ear prints, which I didn't know were a thing, and lip prints, as well as tool marks, bloodstain patterns, and glove prints. But the most common impressions are footwear and tire tread analysis, and obviously because this case deals specifically with tire tread impressions, I'm going to focus on them. And so tire tread impressions can be latent, so which is like invisible to the eye, or patent, which is visible to the eye. And so I kind of talk about both of them. I don't really go into depth on latent prints because it's very confusing collecting a latent tire print. Um, So you often find tire impressions on many different surfaces, such as snow, dirt roads, and any other unpaved areas. And they can also leave, like, grazing marks of its sidewall or tread against hit-and-run victims, which is very disturbing. And the impressions can be short and isolated or, like, longer impressions of all four tires. So it kind of just depends the scene of the crime. And when a tire leaves an impression, it transfers its class, wear, and individual characteristics to the substrate, which is why we want to collect it. And so this direct physical contact can result in either a highly detailed impression or a very poorly detailed impression. And just to kind of clarify, class characteristics of tires are defined as physical characteristics acquired during the manufacturing process, so made from the same mold that tires have in common. And they can be combined to limit a tire impression to a select group within the overall group bearing the similar class characteristics such as like design, pattern, size, shape, and mold variation. So it kind of puts it into a class of objects. Um, And then the the individual characteristics are thought of as like the everyday wear and tear on the tire that makes it an individual tire. And so tire impressions are often found away from the center of the crime scene area and they're often in less conspicuous locations. So the investigators need to keep a really careful eye out for them. And so the first officer on the scene has to protect the scene from any other like vehicular or pedestrian traffic in case there is potential tire mark or footprint evidence. But unfortunately, tire impressions are often overlooked or forgotten 
so they end up being destroyed while the rest of the scene gets processed. And sometimes, even if the investigators are aware that there might be tire tracks, they don't know how to collect them, so they get ruined anyways, which is kind of sad. And so the size and arrangement of the tread blocks on the tire vary around the circumference of the tire, so that's why it's important to recover as much of the impression as possible. And did you know that a full rotation of a passenger car or light truck tire is about six to eight feet in length and so since the tread design varies around the tires you want to collect as much of that six to eight feet as possible and the minimum amount that you should collect is about three feet but isn't that cool I didn't know that it was so long but I guess I didn't either that's interesting that seems yeah, right? like absurd to me I have such a bad time like visualizing measurements so I'm like eight feet I do too. Like, if you try and lay out that length, it's like there's no way that could be a tire. Like one rotation yeah, of a one, tire. Yeah, that's it's crazy to me. Same height as most men, not eight feet. Six feet. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just clarify that. <laughs> I was like, my mind went to three feet too, not eight feet. So I was like, oh, what yeah. kind of men? Men are taller than that. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Uh, most tire impressions are not recoverable in their original form, but they can be photographed, cast, and lifted. And so that being said, sometimes a tire will leave its impression on a victim's clothing or debris like wood or paper uh, that it ran over. And in those cases, you can take that original item as evidence after a photograph has been taken of it in situ. And for those of you who might not know what in situ means, it just means the original place that the object was in before anyone touched it. And often, the photographs taken can be digitally enhanced to give a more detailed photo of the impression than what the investigators could have collected at the crime scene. So that's another reason why it's important to take pictures of evidence at crime scenes. And now we get to talk about how to take a cast. And so, in basically every case where a cast can be taken, it should be taken, especially with three-dimensional impressions because a three-dimensional cast shows all the features, dimensions, and details better than a ph photograph would. Unless the impression was made in coarsely textured materials such as gravel or sand, in that case a photograph shows better detail than a cast would because you would just be collecting that gravel and sand. And so now, If the impression is three to four feet in length, it has to be cast in one single cast, but if it is longer than that, it has to be cast in three foot intervals. So I kind of talked about that when I mentioned how long a tire rotation is. And so for a crime scene that has like four to eight three foot long tire casts, the investigators have to take between 100 to 200 pounds of dental stone to make casts of each tire. And so by dental stone? Mm -hmm. Sorry, do you mean like the stuff that they take casts of like our teeth? Yep. That exact same stuff. I love that. Right? Oh my god, I love that. Okay, sorry, continue. Okay. Yeah, so a three foot long impression takes between twelve to twenty-five pounds of like dental stone, depending on its width and its depth. And, like, for footprint impressions, they only need about two pounds of dental stone. 
And surprisingly, dental stone is very cheap and can be purchased in bulk. So in 2007, you could get 200 pounds of dental stone and it only cost you $200, which is very impressive. And I know that it's 2007 because that's when the article that I read was published. <laughs> I was going to say that's such like an exact amount too that you could find a source that was like, in 2007, this dental stone was $1 a pound. <laughs> yeah, I found a book about tire tread impressions and I was like, whoa, that's really cool. It's written in 2007. It's in our sources. Go check it out. Um, yeah, so dental stone hasn't always been used. And in the past, they used like plasters and plaster of Paris, but they were not as good as dental stone. And stones require like less water. They make harder casts. They can endure cleaning without losing details. And they don't need reinforcements. With plaster of Paris, you need to put in what I think of as a rebar, but like not rebar, into the plaster of Paris to kind of make it structurally sound so that you can actually lift it, which is kind of interesting. So it's nice that they can use dental stone and not that. And so when you're taking the impression, you place things at the end of the impression, like the length, the three foot length of the impression that you're casting, so that the casting material doesn't like flow too far. And in this book, the author suggested using paint stir sticks, which work well, so you like put them at the end of your three feet. And then when you're pouring the dental stone mix, you have to be super careful because it can easily destroy the impression. And so a common method that's used is um, like pouring down a piece of cardboard to kind of break the force of the dental stone and distribute it along the length of the impression. So one person will like tilt the cardboard slightly um, so that the dental stone will flow down it and then the other person pours it onto the cardboard like into the center of it and then the other person kind of like directs where it goes. They kind of move together. And then before you can lift the tire cast, the cast need to be photographed in situ again to show their positions to the rest of the crime. So you can kind of get a feel of what they mean. And so these casts actually dry relatively quickly. Like after 30 minutes, the cast is ready to be lifted, which is very interesting. Um, and to check if it's dry, you can like scratch the back or like knock on it. And if you can't easily scratch it, so like nothing collects while you scratch it, and the knock sounds solid, then the cast is ready to be lifted. And once you um, lift the cast, you can rub the excess dirt um, away with your fingers, but you shouldn't ever use a stick or a brush until it's completely dried and hardened for 48 hours, because you will wreck it, and it will be devastating. I Sorry oh. to interrupt. I was going to say... I love that that's, like, something that needs to be addressed, not to use something abrasive on a cast of a, something used in a crime scene. Like, how many people tried to do this for them to say, you cannot try and rub dirt off or whatever with a stick? <laughs> Let it dry. Right? Yeah, you know, you just lightly flick it off with your finger. You don't just take a stick and wreck it. Anyway, but you can do that once 48 hours are up. You can brush and rinse the rest of the dirt off and be a little bit more aggressive with it. And actually, dental stone is really cool because you can fully submerge it back into water and it will not damage it. So it won't reabsorb that water once it's hardened after those 48 hours. Isn't that neat? That's super neat. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. And that's how you take a cast from dirt 
and you can even recover impressions from snow, which obviously because that's what happened in this case. Um, so again, obviously you begin with documenting and photographing the scene, and if you're having trouble getting a good photograph, you can lightly spray this snow wax or like snow paint to kind of highlight the snow impressions and make the details easier to see in the picture. But this snow wax or paint speeds up the melting of the snow because a new color absorbs more energy from the sun, so you have to be super quick. Um, but there are three other ways to cast a tire tread in snow. And the first way is dry casting snow impressions. So you kind of, you take a sifter, like a flower sifter, and you sift the dental stone over the impression, and then you mist a little bit of water onto it, and then you do that two more times. And then you pour a mixed solution of dental stone over like the shell that you just created and allow it to harden. And so it takes more time to harden due to the cold temperature, but so it'll be a little bit longer than the half hour, which makes sense. And so this process is super quick and easy and inexpensive, and it gives really good detail and generates very little heat so the snow doesn't melt too much. And so dental stone is an exothermic reaction, so it will melt the snow, which is why you want to do it this specific way. And the next way is the snow print wax and snow impression wax. And so you apply the aerosol snow wax to the impression, following the instructions on the back of the can, which is really nice that they have that on there. And then after the last coat of wax, uh, dental stone is added to again reinforce the wax, and then once the dental stone is set, you can lift the cast. And the last way is with sulfur. I didn't know this. This seems like a backwards way to do it, but it seems to work. And it's actually the best method to cast snow impressions, but it does take a longer time and requires a lot of tools, so it's not often used. Um, so, you first melt about four pounds of sulfur very carefully because it's very flammable. And then, once it's melted, you turn the heat off and you allow it to cool, but you have to continue to stir it so that it cools evenly. And then when crystals begin to form in the liquid portion, it becomes cloudy, which means that it is nearing its crystallation temperature and it's ready to pour. So you then kind of create a pathway outside the impression to pour the sulfur down and direct it into the impression, because if you pour it right on, it's going to wreck it. And as soon as the sulfur hits the snow, it hardens. And so it's creating a shell that captures the detail of the snow impressions um, but it's often like super brittle and fragile, so after it cools, a layer of dental stone will help like stabilize it. But you don't want to overflow the dental stone because it will go underneath and wreck the impression. So you kind of have to be really careful about that. But I thought that was it really It sounds neat. like a very tricky process. Yeah, I was really confused that they were making something really hot and then pouring it on snow to collect an impression. But apparently it just instantly hardens and doesn't wreck the impression and actually gives super good detail, which is really cool. And so that's how you collect impressions in snow. And most tire impressions are three-dimensional. But like I said, there are occasions where a tire can leave its impression on a two-dimensional surface. And so lifting those types of impressions involves the transfer of the impression from one surface onto a new one. And often dry dust or residue impressions are left on clothing, paper, or other items. And they can be lifted with the conventional lifting techniques that are often used with fingerprints. 
So such things like electrostatic lifters, gelatin, or adhesive lifters. And sometimes a tire will leave an impression on a road surface and on concrete. And so the book described a way to use dental stone and duct tape to lift the impression off the concrete. And it worked really well. I did not understand it at all, so I'm not going to include it. <laughs> but yeah, it was really neat to see that you could just lift this two-dimensional impression of a tire off of concrete using dental stone and duct tape. And this part is kind of yucky, but if the tire runs over a person, there is a chance that the tire tread can be seen in the dust or residue impressions on the victim and or their clothing. And this is the really gross part, you can also see tire treads in like contusions on the victim, which is where the pressure of the tire causes the blood to flow into like the tread blocks because they're le under less pressure and the blood vessels burst in an outline of the tire tread. It's super gross. That's kind of super cool, but also super disgusting. I can include a picture if you guys want. There was one in the book that I was looking at, but I was like, ooh, that's not yummy. But now let's talk about identification and analysis of tire treads. So identifications of impressions are largely subjective and based on the examiner's experience and the number of individual identifying characteristics in common with a known standard. And analysis also involves identifying the class characteristics of the evidence, followed by locating and comparing the individual identifying characteristics. But regardless of the type of impression evidence, class characteristics are not enough to say that one specific shoe or tire made that impression, so that's why they look for the individual characteristics. And the reason we analyze impression evidence is that mass-produced items often pick up features of wear that individualizes them, and that wear will continue to change throughout the life of the item. And following the analysis, an identification is either determined or ruled out according to the number of individual characteristics the evidence has in common with a suspected source. And a major flaw to this science is that there is no set number of characteristics that have to match in order for an identification to be made. Which is upsetting, but that's just how it is. That baffles me too, because in the case of Williams, the investigator was able to just look at his tire and be like, that looks about right. And then they just kind of continued on from there. Like, I'm sure there's obviously more science and they did more investigating into it. But to be able to say, yeah, that's a match just by looking is a little concerning. Yeah, I, actually, I do talk about that, actually. So it's good that you brought it up. And often the first thing that is examined is the design because it's the most obvious feature of the tire. So you look at it and you're like, okay, that does not match the impression that we took. So then, um, so tire designs are made up of a series of tread blocks. And so these tread blocks vary in size and arrangement and their purpose is to reduce noise of your tire, which I find very interesting. I did not know that and their size and arrangement never repeats and is different on each side of the tire, which is also very interesting. So that's why you can kind of match it. And so this examination of the design will allow for inclusion or exclusion of the tire. And if the tire is clearly a different design, then the difference will be recorded and the examination will be finished on that tire and the investigator will move on to a different one. But 
if the tire does match the design, then further examination is necessary. So the investigator then takes inked known standards from a known tire to compare to the cast impression. And so the inked impression is then like placed over the cast to locate the area where the tread block sizes and arrangement correspond. So they kind of try and match up where it is. And then when they find that, they um, compare it directly to that segment of tire when they find what it represents on that cast. And then there's a number of conclusions that the analyst can come to. So first, it could be they lack sufficient detail. So that means the impression was either not compared or it was and there was not enough detail to come to a meaningful conclusion. The second is an exclusion, which is when su sufficient differences were noted in the comparison of class and individual characteristics. So the particular tire was not the source of the impression, they can say that definitively. And then there are indications of non-associations, which exhibit dissimilarities when compared to the known tires, but the details were not sufficiently clear to permit an exclusion. And then we have limited association of class characteristics. So some similar class characteristics were present, but there were significant limiting factors in the questioned impressions that didn't allow for a stronger association between the unknown and known impression. And then we have the association of class characteristics, where both design and physical size correspond between the question impression and the known tire tread, and correspondence of general wear has to also be present. And so general wear is just the gradual erosion of rubber due to the frictional forces that create visible changes to the appearance of the tire and the impressions they leave. So with the association of class characteristics, the known tire is a possible source of the question impression. And then we have the high degree of association, where the question, impression, and known tire correspond in class characteristics of design, physical size, and general wear. And there must also be wear that because of its location, degree, and orientation make it unusual and or one or more individual characteristics. And so the characteristics observed exhibit strong associations with the quality and or quantity that were insufficient for an identification. Um, and then we have identification, which is the last conclusion. And so this is the highest degree of association where the question, impression, and the known share an agreement of class and randomly acquired characteristics of sufficient quality and quantity. So the known tire was the source of the question, impression. I feel like for an already not great science, to have this many conclusions just makes it so much worse. Like, either have a yes, no, maybe further research needed. Like, why are there so yeah, many, no. like, some characteristics, but not classifying, but not, like, just have a yes, no, maybe. Right. You don't need... It either matches or... Yeah. That's why we use the term match. Yeah, that should also not be a term used, but... <laughs> yeah. that, that's a topic for another day. Um, but yeah, so that's Tire Impression, Evidence, and Analysis. And check out that book if you want more information. It'll be in our sources. And now I'm going to kind of mention how this applies to the case, which Nicole did talk about. And so it was the tire track in the snow that helped catch him. And they were very distinctive tire tracks. And one source said that Williams was super meticulous. And so he always bought fancy tires, 
with very specific designs. And so when he was stopped at that check stop, the police immediately noticed his tires. They took some pictures and they ended up matching him to the ones outside of Jessica Lloyd's house. So that's why he was able to recognize them. That's so dumb on his part. It's hilarious. Idiot. Idiot. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, sir, whatever. But I have a fun fact. So, an investigator who worked on a different case in the Yukon took a photo of a tire impression for a case that he was working on, and then he went to compare it to the database they had, but all the comparisons were blurry and not great, so he went to the nearest Integra tire, and he was able to find a make and model of the tire that made the impression, and so he decided to scan photos of tires in catalogs and pamphlets, and he actually ended up making a new database that's getting information and tires from all over Canada and just starting in the U.S. too. And it's being widely used by the RCMP. And this was actually the database that helped solve the Williams case. That's so cool. Right? Isn't that so neat? That's so cool. I still can't go over... Wow. What? I I still can't get over the fact that he just, like, he seems like a early 20s boy trying to pimp out his car like why do you need such fancy tires if you are committing these crimes like you know something's going to be left you want to be as generic as possible if you're committing these crimes exactly yeah yeah so that's all that i have but yeah that's tire tread and a fun fact for you guys wow well thank you so much journey i feel like i really learned a lot from that I think we kind of, like, only really glossed over tire evidence and stuff in our actual forensic classes, so I really appreciate you teaching us this this evening. Hey, anytime, anytime. (laughs) I honestly don't think we covered it at all. We were just like, pattern evidence, it's bad. Let's focus on fingerprints. And that was it. Pattern Pattern evidence. (laughs) That feels about right. Yeah. Yeah. So, for our next episode... We wanted to discuss a case that we're all very interested in. It is the case of the Phantom of Heilbronn, who, by the way, is not a ghost. This just happens to be their kind of notorious name. Um, And the topic of science that we'll be talking about will be DNA contamination and why it's so problematic. Um, So I really look forward to that. This is a super neat case. Um, Yeah. (laughs) before we go i have another joke for you guys it's not that good but i i tried my they're never good they're never good so i'm so it's okay that's fair okay so what happened to the purse when it was found at the crime scene it emptied its contents i don't know it became an accessory to the crime no no (laughs) (laughs) i love that that's excellent i haven't seen that one whenever i go to look for jokes i love it i've never seen that one that one took a lot of digging to find i was like a few websites deep for that one. Oh my god very much worth it that was a good one i appreciated that one that that's was good <laughs> okay so um journey where can people find us on social media they can find us on instagram youtube and facebook at what the forensics our Twitter is at WTForensicsPC. Our website is whatthefrensics.ca. 
And our email is whattheforensics.gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us. Thank you so much. And also on our website that Journey had mentioned, uh, you'll be able to find all of the sources that we used as well as the source photos that we've been talking about during the podcast. As well as stickers. Get stickers. We ordered a lot. Yes, I forgot. <laughs> as well as stickers. So this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed learning about Colonel Russell Williams and tire tread evidence. Um, we'll see you next time. Have a great week. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm-hmm.